Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of my brilliant colleagues, Brian Green and Alyssa Klein. Many of you may have already dealt with Brian while dealing with different issues, dealing with I-9 compliance or federal agencies or audit or Department of Labor investigations. So today's topic is investigations of U.S. employers by different federal agencies. So the preliminary question that all of us might wonder is, why is immigration compliance so important? Well, obviously we know why. We need to be prepared. And so today we hope to discuss with you um, how the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, particularly the USCIS, has been generously funding the Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS, investigations and investigators, all from our own filing fees for H-1 and L-1 petitions, the anti-fraud fees. The FDNS uh, generally acts on information which has been gathered from years and years ago, often in most cases. And as many of us know, there has been increased cooperation between the different federal agencies that are involved in enforcement of U.S. employers. And then, of course, to be more specific, we have the U.S. Department of Labor through its Wage and Hour Division. We have the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And then we have the FDNS, which I just explained, which is part of the USCIS Enforcement Agency. And most of these investigators are actually allowed to drop in for a visit at your company's headquarters or sites or work location without even obtaining any kind of a warrant. And unfortunately, uh, this could lead to a criminal investigation and criminal sanctions against the company or the founders of the company or the major players in the company. So we hope by the end of the, in the, within the next 30 to 45 minutes, we will provide some kind of tips and strategies for helping you uh, to understand what are the, how the process works and how we can try to overcome some of these problems. So Brian, why is then immigration compliance important? Sheila, we all know that immigration reform and immigration uh, enforcement have been hot topic issues for probably the last six, seven years. And as Congress has uh, failed to pass immigration reform, a lot of the focus has shifted back to immigration enforcement with ICE doing raids on work facilities, ICE sending out lots of notices of inspection to employers for I-9s. But we've also seen here at Murthy Law from an increase in Department of Labor investigations and how Department of Labor is now being tougher and debarring a lot more companies. So the amount of investigations has gone up, and I think the penalties and the attitude of the investigators has gotten tougher against companies. So it matters more now than ever. Okay. Right, and, and all companies need to be aware. Uh, you know, all companies are subject to certain compliance requirements. 
um, such as being regulated through the I-9 employment authorization verification process. But you do have certain employers, like those that employ H-1B employees or those in other non-immigrant classifications, which are subject to additional compliance issues, specifically in this case, immigration. Uh, And they are affected uh, through these FDNS site visits, uh, through U.S. Department of Labor's wage and hour division enforcement actions. Uh, And then even within your immigration employer context, you have a a subset, really, of those employers that are in the IT consulting industry, which are even more severely impacted by the regulations just due to the nature of the business, employees moving around from location to location, new LCAs, H-1B amendments, etc. Uh, and so they do, they may find that their businesses are more impacted um, by things such as the site visit program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Sheila, to add to that, and, and Alyssa is absolutely right, the Department of Labor can be even more disruptive because with the information sharing you mentioned earlier, when Department of Labor starts an investigation, there's often a ripple effect. And you'll see that when your employees go for their visa interviews, they will call it stamping, but it really is an interview, they will get a 221G and the U.S. consular officer will see in the system Department of Labor investigation ongoing, and they may wait until that investigation's over to issue that visa. So your worker is now trapped overseas, stuck in Chennai and Hyderabad, you know, your end clients waiting for this valuable resource to get back. You're not getting your billing. Families are separated. Stress on the worker, stress on you. So this disruption can cause your business and your clients to be affected, all coming from some underpayments to a worker, some you know, documents that were not done correctly. It can really uh, blossom or mushroom into a much larger problem. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it's kind of really unfortunate because, as we said, the uh, FDNS DOL wage and hour division and ICE investigators continue to increase their visits to different companies. Um, they don't need the warrant. They don't need subpoenas to inquire about H-1 worker lo- work locations, the, the prevailing wage or salaries, who is the control, uh, you know, how is the work being controlled, and whether the employer has given adequate notice of the filing of a labor condition application. So those are the four sort of major, major issues that they hit upon in the H-1B context. Um, And given the success um, from their perspective, not ours, uh, of the site visit program, employers should expect that this program will continue to be expanded to possibly other classifications uh, and also possibly even before uh, in the pre-adjudication site visit context rather than only post-approval. Um, currently, right now, we are seeing that H-1s, um, the investigators come only after the petition has been approved. So what's this new thing that we've been hearing about, Brian, about the FBI's involvement? Yeah, this is a scary development, especially for employers that have had some sort of problem in the past. It's, it's apparent now that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is working hand in glove with different other agencies, especially the Department of Labor and possibly FDNS and ICE. And what, what can happen here is, as Sheila alluded to earlier, these primary investigation agencies, DOL, FDNS, ICE, will share information with FBI, and the FBI can run a file. And if they feel that there's some sort of fraud going on at the company or some sort of immigration issues, or they can work with Department of State's Visa Fraud Office, they can be secretly building a case for a grand jury while the company thinks, we're cooperating with the DOL, we're giving information, we're doing what we're supposed to do, it's all going to go away. 
And in fact, companies get indicted and owners have to go to trial and defend themselves at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees to white collar defense lawyers because the FBI doesn't have to be the primary investigator. So you don't know FBI is working on your case until it's too late. That is pretty scary. And of course, we're seeing a lot more notice of intents to revoke or noirs as we call them. Uh, can you just give us an overview of what's going on with that, Alyssa? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've, we have been seeing NORS for a few years now, um, stemming from failed site visits from this FDNS program. And, and really, you know, employers should be, you know, wary of this because it, it could be that these continual NORS or increase in NORS or site visits of the company could be a precursor to something larger and, and perhaps something more troublesome that's mm-hmm. going on with respect to an investigation of their company. Um, so so with these NORS, um, you know, essentially what's happening is either uh, there's a failed visa application at a consulate, um, you know, there's a failed site visit by FDNS, um, or perhaps there's a wage and hour complaint that's filed with the DOL by a current or, or former employee of the company. This information then goes back to USCIS, and USCIS essentially reopens the case, and it could be that, you know, this is a case that was approved six months ago or perhaps three years ago. Um, we do see cases where uh, notices of intent to revoke are even issued on petitions that are no longer current. Um, and, and they're basically re- going back and and saying, hey, you know, we have this damaging information. What, what do you have to say? Huh. And as we've been seeing, one of the major, major issues, which we briefly touched upon, really, is the notice of intents to revoke. Uh, by either the Fraud Detection National Security of the USCIS or the U.S. Department of State, as we talked about the visa application process, um, primarily, and one of the major issues is the issue of location. Uh, The notice of intent to revoke will often mention that the USCIS conducted a site visit and the H-1B worker was physically not there at that particular work location mentioned on the LCA and mentioned as the work location on the H-1B petition. No one knew, um, no one there was aware of the H-1B worker or the H-1B employee stated that he was at a different work location or work site. And H-1B employers have had a practice of filing an H-1B petition, and then when the worker is required to move to a different work location or a new work site, an LCA update is filed with the U.S. Department of Labor, but no H-1B amendment is filed with the USCIS. And since FDNS is part of the USCIS and they are unaware of this, they believe that there's a violation of the U.S. the terms and conditions on the U.S. petition itself. What are the other kinds of issues or dealing with this, Brian? Yeah, sure. Just to continue with what you're, you're talking about here, FDNS, they were using a lot of contractors before. I think now it's a blend of contractors and employees of FDNS. When they do the site visit, if someone there is kind enough to say, oh, well, that worker was here and has moved on to a new location, the FDNS officer or, or it's the contractor doesn't have to do the extra work to go to a second location. They may have a schedule. They may have to go visit three places that day. They can simply note the file and say, worker, not here. And then, as Alyssa's saying, two years later, a NOR comes out. So the problem here is 
is that FDNS has no duty to go check on your LCA update. And the problem is that USCIS and their computer systems, they're probably pulling the data from the I-129s, and they have these first locations. So the practice you mentioned about updating the LCA, FDNS is going to commonly see that first location. And if you haven't done amended H-1B petitions, they're not going to know which place to go to, and you're going to start having this pattern of NORs being issued. And in the worst-case scenario, the FDNS officer will go to the first location, the one from the I-129, the LCA, and they will see or someone will tell them that worker was never here. Or at the headquarters, someone will say, oh, they didn't work here. They immediately went and worked at an end client location. That is, is evidence of fraud. And the FDNS can refer that over to ICE, can refer it over to the FBI or U.S. Attorney's Office saying this is immigration fraud, visa fraud mail fraud, wire fraud, because the H-1B petition is sent to the government through the mail. The, L- the LCA is uh, submitted through the internet, so it's a wire fraud issue. It becomes easier for a U.S. Attorney's Office when you get three, four, five, six different types of violations to build a case and make it uh, easier for the bosses above them to approve a prosecution. It's just, just cra- it's just crazily scary. and. So from um, what are the other kinds of issues uh, that may be raised in the notice of intention to revoke? Right. So not only are they looking to the looking to see is this worker where you said they were going to be, they're also looking to see are they doing the job that you said they were going to do? Is that occupation of software developers that really what they're employed as? Um, so a NOR may may also uh, say that they they don't think that they're doing the job that's listed in the approved petition. Um, for example, if and, and this can open the company up actually to more of I don't know a fishing expedition where the the government just seeks more and more data about that entity. Um, for example, if a headquarters location is listed, uh, the FDNS does a site visit. Maybe they find a shared office uh, office space, maybe one employee there. What you could find is that NOR is issued and asks for list of all of your employees, all of the employees' work locations, salaries, lease, floor plan, uh, you know, in addition to any other, you know, evidence that you have sufficient work for that person, that there's sufficient space for your employees to do their jobs described. Um, and this, this does happen when there is a, a headquarter location listed on on the H-1B petition, and then in that scenario that Brian described, and then people are then moved with these LCA updates. Because an LCA update is not updated with USCIS unless you file the amendment petition. So um, it's not, it gives you some Department of Labor protection probably, but not not in with respect to the site visits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what, about, what are the other kinds of factors that have come into play? Uh, sure, Sheila. One red flag I think that USCIS has picked up on a lot in the last couple of years is a practice where smaller uh, IT consulting companies especially will use one job description for everyone in the company. So they might file 40, 50 H-1B petitions, and with the H-1B cap being met this year and every year for the last couple of years, they may actually have filed, say, 100 H-1B petitions but only had 50 or 60 selected. The FDNS will see a pattern where every single one was listed as programmer analyst or computer programmer. And then the, they will do site visits or they will do um, interviews of the workers, and they find that the job details are actually different that they've just used one blanket job description, the end clients are actually having them do software development or systems analyst work, then they're going to start seeing NORs talking about, you know, asking for this phishing exposition, or in reality asking, what are these workers really doing? And if the job duties now, 
either changed or if they never were really those first job classifications, you again get in this fraud problem where it's a pattern or practice of using one job description to get an approval or maybe even to get approval at the lowest wage level and then they have a lot of evidence to work with. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a bad problem whether you're using headquarters for employee locations always or the same job description. It's very easy for FDNS to track that. Okay, so the first we talked about location. Second, we talked about not doing the exact same job duties. Let's go to the third one, which we know is the control-related issues. And since January 2000, for all of you who are familiar with the Newfeld memo and all of the variations of it, we've been seeing where the big issue the hot button issue in issuing the NOR is the worker is not being controlled by the H-1B employer because they're working at a third-party client location. So can you share examples with us, Alyssa? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is really uh, pertaining to those situations where you have an employee working off-site at a third-party location, uh, in generally within the IT consulting industry. Um, so, for example, if FDNS for somehow gets a hold of a contract or a master service agreement, uh, say between uh, the, the employer and a vendor or between vendors, and that contract or that service agreement discusses control. They could say the client will direct and control the work, or perhaps the vendor that's managing the project will control and direct the work. Um, this this could come up in a, in a notice of intent to revoke for perhaps more than just one one person's petition. If you have 20 or 25 people or 100 people on a project, they could potentially issue notices of intent to revoke for all of those petitions. Huh. Okay, and what are the other common issues that we notice or see here, Brian? It's been a problem in the industry, the IT consulting industry, where end clients have been very hesitant to provide letters verifying job duties or saying that the uh, H-1B employer will actually do the control on a day-to-day basis of the worker. And FDNS uh, has obviously keyed in on this as well. So what FDNS will do or what USCS will do is if there is no end client confirmation of the job duties and a lack of control by the end client, they will issue an RFE or, or come up with a NOR saying you're not really controlling this worker. So I think the lack of end client documentation is just maybe they have something in the system where it just pops out you know, a, a, a prompt to issue the NOR or the RFE because that's not there. Right, right. And even when the end clients do provide verification, which, as we just talked, is grudgingly few and far between sometimes, uh, USCIS may still ask for specific details on the manner and the methods of control which are utilized by the H-1B employer. So uh, what are the other issues from NOIRs that seem to come up for as far as FDNS or DOL or the consular investigations on peti- or petition returns? Right. Well, so we've been talking a lot about site visits, and but one of the things that was touched upon but is worth going back to is travel and consular processing, okay? So, you know, not every petition receives a site visit, okay? And it is possible that you move employees around and there's no site visit and you don't get a notice of intent to revoke based on a failed site visit. However, if you file a petition for location one, maybe be it headquarters or a client, and then the employee um, is moved to a new end client location, you know, they might very well need to go get a visa at some point and travel and, and leave the country. And it could come up at that moment if they go for an interview based on a petition that's not current anymore. Hmm. Okay. And what, what happens when they go to the consulate? 
what's going to probably happen is the consular officer has access to the original H-1B petition through what's called the PIM system, and they can see the LCA, they can see you know, the page in the I-129 that lists the work location, and they can ask that H-1B worker or the H-4 um, applicant, the spouse of the H-1B worker, where is the person working now? And it's almost like a catch-22. It's If the worker or the spouse makes a false statement, they can be given a 212A6C finding and not allowed in the country for life because of a misrepresentation. The, the, the applicant has to tell the truth, but if there's been no H-1B amendment, they're stuck because they're saying, well, um, my H-1B says I'm working in New Jersey, but in reality, my end client's outside of Chicago. And what the consular officer will do is they will send a, they'll prepare a memorandum. They'll summarize the applicant's uh, statement or testimony. They'll send it back to USCIS recommending that USCIS uh, issue a NOR and possibly revoke the approved H-1B petition. So instead of getting the visa and coming right back in the country, now the person's stuck in India for up to six months, nine months, a year, while USCIS does this investigation and looks at the old H-1B petition. And well, you're just saying India as an example because it could be anywhere in the world where they go to. It could be, but we know that the vast majority of H-1Bs are, are uh, taken by the talented people coming from India in this field. So the problem here is that USCIS will get the memo and the NOR will come out and the NOR will actually quote in block print the statements from the applicant at the consulate, usually H-1B worker, and then you have to respond to that showing why there was no violation. It's tough. Hmm. Okay. And we've also seen where now the Department of Labor or the FDNS sort of, I guess, cross-refer to each other with memorandums of understanding or MOUs. How does that work? Right. So they are absolutely communicating with each other. And the fact of the matter is, even though, um, you know, with respect to an LCA, you're signing off on, as an employer, agreeing to cooperate with the DOL in a wage and hour division investigation, you could potentially be signing off on other investigations too, um, because you know the the DOL has these MOUs with different federal agencies, and if they're getting information through these DOL investigations that you've already agreed to, not subject to administrative or judicial subpoena, that information collected during those wage and hour investigations uh, can go to USCIS, uh, the FDNS officers, FBI, local, state, or federal prosecutors. That is a little bit scary for sure. So, Brian, can you give us examples of situations where a DOL investigation can turn into more of a criminal nature? Because that's the very, like, super scary part as far as most employers who are listening to this phone call. It is scary, but it's also it's also reality. We've seen real-life examples, and you can go to the Department of Justice website, and you could probably do a search for H-1B and find a number of um, public, service, public announcements showing that there have been plea bargains or convictions. And one example, it's a real-life example, is employers may have forged a signature, or maybe a manager or someone in the HR department has, um, a, you know, a recruiter has forged a signature on an end client document. And if those documents get, you know, submitted as part of the H&B filing process, that can be immigration fraud. So if a DOL investigator, when they're going through the H&B files, if they see that there's this forged signature and they're talking to the mid-vendor, the end client, if they obtain information showing this fraud, they have several options. They can send this to FDNS or ICE. And ICE has criminal investigatory power. They can actually go, and I've, I've heard of this personally, where a DOL investigator just refers the case to the local prosecutor in the county or the state where the um, forgery happened. And it's actually easier to get 
a, a criminal investigation started to say if you're outside of Boston, if you go to state prosecutor, it's not very difficult. You can go one step higher and go to a U.S. attorney's office for federal prosecution. And if, if there's any financial documents involved, especially tax documents, the deal investigator can share the information with the Internal Revenue Service. And we've seen cases where the IRS, the FBI, the Department of Labor have all worked together. And there have been tax fraud and immigration fraud charges brought at the same time. So the DOL investigator, or it could be FDS investigator, they have lots of options and they will coordinate and figure out what's the best way to approach it. Okay, I'm not very clear when you say forging signatures. Why would the uh, owner of a company be forging the signatures? Statements of work, uh, purchase orders, if that's what's requested in an RFE, there is this temptation to say, well, I've got this existing SOW, I've got this existing purchase order, I'll just take out the worker's name and put a new worker's name in there and submit it. And then FDNS or DOL can track that and they'll go back to the end client and say, did you issue this particular SOW? And if the, if the company says, no, we've done it in the past, but this is, not, this is not a valid document, I did not sign this division, this paper, then that shows a forgery occurred. Okay. Well, I mean, we're all sort of grown-up adults, and we know that America is a nation of laws, and it's the rule of law, and it's really scary because I tell people, whether it's individuals or companies, all the time that not getting the H-1 petition approval is pretty bad. Not getting your green card is really kind of horrible because that's what we want, and that's why we're here to help people. But not getting that H-1 or not getting that green card and then spending 5 or 10 or 15 years in a federal penitentiary or jail for criminal violations, for fraud, for misrepresentation, for document tampering, these are federal offenses. And as Brian just mentioned, you know, they will get you because you use the internet, so you have wire fraud, you have mail fraud, you have visa fraud. So they really can go after multiple criminal sanctions. Um, and I know that sometimes it's like, you know, I guess from different people from different cultures, it's like, ah, it's just a, you know, it's a white lie. It's not real. Well, it is a big deal in America to tamper with documents. And I sometimes feel I'm speaking to the choir and for people who obviously know this and would never break the law, I apologize. But unfortunately, in our work, we see so many of these problems that it's really scary um, and and the time, money, effort, and energy in trying to correct that or trying to wriggle out of the, the mess that we've gotten ourselves into um, can really create problems. So we've heard of times when the ICE and Department of Labor will work together during the initial investigation stage. How does that work, Alyssa? Right. So the, the DOL and, and ICE, they're going to essentially team up and they're going to review, uh, you know, pay history to, to see, um, you know, is everything, you know, being done properly by the employer and some, uh, you know, common problems might be uh, costs of the H-1B being passed along to the employee. Um, and they're going to uh, to look to see, you know, what fees are being taken out of that employee's paycheck, um, either for legal fees or for government filing fees. Not only are certain fees required to be paid by the employer, but it could also have the effect of then reducing the employee's ultimate salary uh, to below the required wage. So there's multiple problems there. Uh, another another common issue uh, it would be this running the payroll. Okay, it's essentially a form of tax fraud, and it's also a violation of several federal programs. Uh, another thing that employers should be aware of is, you know, making sure that documents 
documents that are being issued, payroll documents, uh, employment offer letters, anything with respect to salary is correct and accurate. Okay. And what about the FDNS? Where would an FDNS investigation possibly lead? Uh, where and when does it end up leading to some kind of a criminal investigation or prosecution? And what options does FDNS have? Now, I've seen cases where FDNS has tracked down and has identified fraudulent documents, whether it's a signature that's fraudulent or whether the document has been created falsely. And FDNS will start to contact the employer and, and also the end client to verify, is this end client letter accurate or is this statement of work accurate? So it's not just DOL, as I spent, so mentioned earlier. FDNS has the power to do this too. And it's even a little bit scary with FDNS because they have direct access to ICE. They're in the same Department of Homeland Security. So it's kind of hard to explain as the employer that you signed off on an H&B petition, you signed the petitioner letter and signed the I-129, and that a fraudulent document was included and filed with USCIS. Even if you didn't know that it was there, you're responsible because you signed off on it. So FDNS is tracking these down, and when they find it, they can issue a NOR, you know, Mentioning fraud, as Alyssa said earlier, they can ask for more information in the NOR. And then, you, again, you have this tough decision. Do you not respond to the NOR and let the, you know, the H-1B petition be revoked? Do you respond? And when you do, anything you say can be will used against you in a court of law. So it's tricky for employers how to handle that. And at that point, you if you feel like there's fraud issues in the NOR, I urge you to talk to a qualified immigration attorney and not do this on your own. Hmm. And one concern I have is that if you have managers or people at the company that are not yet U.S. citizens, if they are interviewed by FDNS or by another government agency, they have their own personal risk of losing their green cards and being put into removal for being involved in, in immigration fraud. Right. I mean, in addition, things in addition to these things, which uh, can happen, um, as, you know, and can be done by FDNS. Uh, FDNS can also ask that certain uh, workers turn state evidence and essentially testify against the company, management, owners, um, and they may resolve potentially an immigration problem that you just raised and be eligible for something called a U visa that can lead to green cards. Uh, FDNS can also refer the situation to state or county prosecution, where the in the location where the forgery occurred, if it if it did happened in the U.S., or they could refer the situation to FBI or locally, the local U.S. Attorney's Office for immediate review for criminal investigation or, or prosecution. That's so that yeah. go quite that, that's far. That's a common tactic. When the federal government tries to do investigate or try to prosecute, they often go at the bottom of the, of the food chain, find a few people that have evidence, then offer them deals. But for immigrants, it's even more powerful because they can say, instead of deporting you, removing you, we'll give you a U visa and you can eventually qualify for green card status. And someday you'll be a U.S. citizen and we'll forgive what you did, but you got to give us evidence on the owner of the company. That's really powerful because it protects the family members of that manager or that HR person. And, and if, the, if there's any retaliation afterwards, it's even more of a problem criminally. So Right. And you're also telling as the uh, Department of Labor investigator or whatever, you're saying, oh, if you file a complaint against the employer, we'll, you'll get back wages. We'll reimburse you all your money. Well, it's somebody who's caught between a rock and a hard place and is now being offered a bunch of money or having to pack up and leave and get deported or removed. I mean, what would you do in their place? Most of us would be tempted to take, not take the high road because to protect yourself and your family. Um, so those are issues to be concerned about. What about Department of State referrals? Consular officers often do this whenever they have 
a visa interview where they're not sure if they want to approve it or there might be some sort of problem at the company, uh, they'll do a 221G that asks for a lot of documentation information, kind of like the RFE of the NORS that Alyssa was talking about. And they'll ask for you know a, a spreadsheet of all the workers in the company, work location, the salaries, what their status is. And they can collect the information. They can pass it over. It's really not pertinent to that H-1B worker or the H-4 um, spouse's visa application, but they will ask for the information and they will share it with Visa Fraud Unit, with Department of Labor, with ICE, with FBI. And they can ask the worker or the spouse for the individual job duties that the person is performing right now, you know, who do they report to as a manager so we get back to the control issue. So the contractors can sort of be a proxy investigator for all the other agencies, and they do refer things back pretty often. And unfortunately, when they do it, there's usually a 221G issue. So again, the worker is, is stranded, the end client's not being staffed right now, and you have that spiral effect that we talked about earlier. Hmm. Okay. And how do we deal with, or better yet, avoid any kind of investigations? Because that's the crux of the issue for all those listening to this phone call. Right. We've been talking about everything that could happen that could go wrong. And we want to make sure that people are taking all the steps uh, that they can. So if and when you get that knock knock on the door, that, that you're protected as best as possible. So one first thing to do, and this might sound basic, but it's very important. Check all of your petitions before filing. Check carefully. Make sure that anything and everything you're putting in, in that petition is accurate because it is it can all be scrutinized by federal investigators and federal attorneys looking for false statements. Another thing to to keep in mind, and, and this you know may not be the most common issue, but if if a company has you know HR management that are perhaps given in incentives or bonuses for uh, success uh, successfully getting H-1B petitions approved and workers onto and client projects, just be careful to closely monitor that and, and make sure that these incentives and bonuses are not leading to situations where employers are perhaps creating that forged document or or including information that's not accurate in order to get the approval to, to get the bonus. Um, you know, and, and another thing that especially IT consulting companies need to do is file an amended H-1B petition when your end client changes. So if that end client listed on your petition is now that, that client's that client's project has ended, you're moving your employee to a new project, yes, get the LCA to file the H-1B amendment. And really, this needs to be done immediately. It needs to be done timely with the change. Uh, so, you know, I know companies are concerned, well, I'm not going to have an end client letter right away, things like that. You know, you can submit secondary evidence. There are alternatives and talk to the attorney, I think, and come up with perhaps alternative evidence that can be submitted so you're not delaying filing that amendment because of an end client letter. There are alternatives. And there's one benefit there. The filing fees are lower for amended petitions, right? Yes. Yeah. And what about money from H-1 workers and those factors? You should not take it. So it's an easy <laughs> answer, Sheila. Just don't take any money from your workers. Um, I've worked with Department of Labor investigators for the past seven years. They don't understand the concept of a worker paying any money to an employer. It's not an American style of employment. So if you're collecting money as a deposit, you know, as a security fund, if you're taking money and saying, if you work for us for six months, one year, we'll refund this money. If you, I've had companies where they took money and then they paid the money back as a higher hourly wage. Department 
Department of Labor recognizes none of this, or they recognize it as being a problem or a violation. So I think you need to institute a policy today that you take no money from any workers, and if you are going to give advances to workers, that you're very careful when you talk to an attorney about how to have it documented in writing and how to show it if there's any sort of deductions from future paychecks to repay that advance, that those deductions are done clearly to meet the Department of Labor's requirements in the 20 CFR 655 section. So just don't do that. That's a red flag, and, and it gets gonna, it's that first investigation that leads to five or six more. Um, one problem we see is where h and employers, especially if the worker is coming from India directly or another country, obviously, if they're not put on payroll as soon as they come in the country and are available for work, some employers may make them go apply for SSN numbers. They may try to wait until they're on an incline project. Department of Labor recognizes or states that you have to have them on payroll as soon as they're available. And a lot of companies will have this pattern of owing one or two months of salary at the beginning of the employment, which if you're a big enough company, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in back wages. And if you are going to be in the business of employing H&B workers, you have to do it properly. One of the biggest problems from Department of Labor's perspective is not doing a bona fide termination. And Murthy Law Firm um, has written articles on this. They're on murthy.com. There are several steps involved, but you have to notify USCS. You have to notify the worker. You may have to re- pay return transportation costs or at least offer them to the worker. If you don't do this, if you don't do it right, the Department of Labor basically keeps uh, the meter on the taxi rolling and the salary back wage obligation, the required wage Alyssa commented about, just keeps rolling and rolling. And you have to have one worker who left you, and all of a sudden, Department of Labor says, you have to pay this person $40,000. And the taxes on it, the unemployment compensation premiums, workers' comp premiums, it's just a bad situation for someone, especially the larger companies or companies that are H&B dependent. The more H&B workers you have, the greater the risk that you have with this problem. So don't take money from any workers. Put them on payroll immediately, and make sure you have a, a, a you have a policy in place to do a bona fide termination within several days of the person either not reporting to work, not cooperating with your instructions, saying that they're going to leave the company, they're quitting or moving to another employer. Just have these things in writing and follow them, please. Yeah. So all of this really sort of is obviously extremely uh, nerve-wracking and stressful when you're the employer. And since we're always mindful of the time and we see that it's close to 40 minutes and we try to make it between 30 and 45 minutes, what I do want to touch upon is to definitely uh, share with you that, uh, you know, obviously we're very pleased that you could make time in your very busy schedule to participate in today's conference call on this really Uh, It's always a hot topic because it seems like the investigations continue to increase at a faster and faster pace. But those of you who are listening on this conference call obviously understand the importance because you're willing to invest your most precious commodity, the shortage of time that you have in being a part of today's conference call and trying to understand where the risks are where the biggest RFEs or NORs and how you can try to solve or deal with these issues and avoid or solve the problems. Um, as Even though the economy is continuing to improve, the government, as we know, has deep pockets and their continuation of funding and continuation of hiring more and more investigators and sharing and cross-sharing information between all of the different federal government agencies and now throwing FBI into this mix uh, for good measure is only adding to the level of complexity and this web that any one of us can get ensnared in. 
Um, I know that the Murti Law Firm is having another special uh, conference, teleconference, which many of you or most of you should have received information by email. Uh, it's a much longer session. It'll get into nitty-gritty details and break down and parse uh, up uh, and maybe play role play and try to really get into different issues uh, on how to protect yourself as an employer and you as an individual or senior HR manager or the president or what have you in the company. Um, and for those who uh, are working in this area, we strongly suggest that it might be worthwhile investing even more time than just the 30 or 45 minutes because we like to do that a few times a year because that way you will save more time and more money by investing it uh, investing the time and money upfront rather than finding yourself being stuck. It's always like we talk about education. The investment initially, a stitch in time saves nine. Prevention is always cheaper than cure. Uh, on behalf of myself, Alyssa Klein, Brian Green, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team and family, as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of our law firm uh, in this month of May 2014, and uh, hope to continue in business, hope to continue to have your support from you and your company as we continue to fight and demand rights, as we share valuable knowledge and information with you. And we look forward to continuing to protect you and your business so that you can continue to celebrate your 10th, 20th, and 30th anniversary so that we can all continue to thrive and succeed together. Thank you for making time, and we look forward to continuing to take great care of you. Have a great day.